It's Thursday, May 21st. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 2. We've reached verse 19. Take a look at the text with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, we saw in verses 15 and 16, the comparison with Balaam, that the false teachers are like Balaam. They are loving their gain from doing the compromise thing that they're doing, teaching false doctrine. We then looked at the fact that they promise a lot and don't deliver their waterless springs, which is really the focus of our passage today. They speak loud boasts of folly we saw last time, uh, sensual passions of the flesh barely escaping from those who live in error. Now here's our passage here today, verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then this interesting proverbial statement, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So we're talking about enslavement here and that these false teachers are promising freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. There's a play on words here in the text, and we're going to look at all of that. Let's start with this promise of freedom. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, they promise them freedom. Now them, again, is the people that they're seeking to entice, which could be us if we're not careful. So we want to make sure that we are not enticed by false teachers. And the thing that they're wanting you to be free from, we see this throughout the uh, New Testament as a temptation and often a characteristic, quite often a characteristic of the false teachers. Jude, verse number four, Jude four, the parallel book to 2 Peter uh, chapter two, spoke of these people. We've quoted this several times in our series. Certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who are designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, here's the characteristic of their life, they don't live according to a godly moral standard, who, now this is their teaching, this is what they do, they pervert the grace of God. They talk a lot about the grace of God, that's what makes them false teachers that are hard to identify. But they turn it into sensuality, or as some translations put it, a license to do wrong, that you can do whatever you want, which is what I've pointed out and we've seen throughout 2 Peter chapter two. And in so doing, uh, they deny, certainly by their ungodliness, they deny by their behavior and by their teaching uh, our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the promise of the false teachers. You can be free uh, from the moral restraints of the law. And as Paul had to often say in Romans, in particular, Romans chapter 3, verse 8, uh, this conclusion that was drawn from an inadequate view of the gospel, this sense of being freed from the jurisdiction of the moral law of God. Uh, it's what we call antinomianism, anti against namos in Greek, the law. Antinomianism is a teaching that you don't really need to concern yourself with the constraints or the dictates or the precepts of the moral law of God. You shouldn't worry about that. Um, and he says, why not do evil that good may come. That's the conclusion you might come to if you think it's all of grace. And of course, grace is about forgiveness. And if sin is all pinned to the cross, then we shouldn't care. I mean, we should do whatever we want, right? And he says, as some have slanderously charged us with saying, in other words, that is not what we're saying, right? Their condemnation is just, which is exactly what we're seeing throughout Second Peter chapter 2. The condemnation on the false teachers, it comes because these folks are saying, if you understand grace the way they do, the false teachers, then you can do what you want. And what happens is God is ending up being the gracious, merciful, forgiving God that he is, so it doesn't matter. You can do evil. So this promise of freedom, 
is something that we need to see as the most extreme example of the false teaching. They promise freedom. Well, the freedom that we're thinking of initially that I think was most obvious in the first century and still obviously lingers today is free from moral constraint. You don't need to worry about the law. And true antinomianism. Don't worry about the moral dictates of the law. Um, there's, I think, a more subtle brand of this that is rampant in evangelicalism, and I mean within good Bible teaching churches. And I want to talk about that uh, for just a second. Uh, it says here in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, the freedom that I think a lot of evangelical Christians are considering is that um, it comes from this phrase, for sin will have no dominion over you. Uh, in other words, don't, don't have this as your problem, and we'll talk about that enslavement in a second. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. And again, that phrase is used to have people like us who understand forgiveness in Christ, that there's absolutely no accountability. We're free from any future accountability. It's all under the blood of Christ. It's all forgiven. So you can have a full-blown antinomianism that says uh, you shouldn't worry about the moral constraints of the law, but that would be easier to uh, suss out in our day. But this is pretty clear that people today often think, well, it really doesn't matter. There's really no accountability for the uh, sins that I commit, certainly not before God. There might be some repercussions. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, this is the first epistle, obviously, that we have uh, from Peter. He addresses this very clearly. It's very uncomfortable. This is why you don't see these passages quoted very often in evangelical churches or churches at all, it seems. But he talks about obedience. Again, to what? Well, to the moral law of God, obviously. And you can put that under the banner of loving God and loving your brother, but all the law, the moral law of God, lines up underneath that. You don't steal from your brother if you love him. You don't covet his stuff. All those things are expressions of the moral law of God. And he says, as obedient children, he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you weren't a part of this. But he who has called you, but I'm sorry, but as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Then he quotes an oft-repeated line here. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call, here's the part we're really uncomfortable with today. If you call on him, God, as father, right? And we're thinking, okay, we're his children, so everything's copacetic. God is forgiving. God is merciful who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, right? Then conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile upon the earth. So this sense of being strangers and aliens in this world, and we are not a part of the world system, and we think, well, I pray to God, God forgives me, everything's fine. We are reminded by Peter here, he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, we understand Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and we will not stand before the great white throne judgment and be assigned a place of punishment for the sins that we've committed. But the Bible is very clear. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says very clearly that the judgment seat of Christ will be a time where we will give an account for our deeds, the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there is a... Uh, a time of evaluation. And I often illustrate that, the distinction between the judge at the courthouse in Santa Ana or the judge at the Costa Mesa County Fair. They're both judges and they both evaluate. Uh, one certainly has a uh, end goal of a punitive response to, uh, to sin or moral 
uh, infractions. And the other one uh, can certainly judge moral infractions, but those moral infractions aren't going to be, uh, there's, there's not some kind of penal substitute or a penal uh, penalty rather for the things that are done wrong. And yet you suffer loss because there is a sense in which you could have been rewarded, you know, uh, first, second, third, you could have had some kind of prize, you could have had some kind of reward, but you failed to get that. You were disqualified from that because of your bad or poor or slack behavior. So there is an accountability. It's the dif difference we talk about in Christian uh, circles, we talk about it this way, the Greek word bima, the raised platform of standing before a judicial magistrate in Corinth, or as we think about it, standing before Christ, the bima seat judgment of Christ, or the great white throne judgment. Just because we're not going to the great white throne judgment of God does not mean we will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which will have an evaluative uh, uh, look at our lives, an evaluation of our lives. And that's very important for us to remember. So there's a lot of false teachers out there, just full-blown antinomians talking about freedom from moral constraints. But there are also a lot of people talking about the fact that Peter is correcting in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 17, that you don't have to worry about what you do because, you know, it's not a big deal. God has forgiven us. It's all been nailed to the cross. He separated our sins from us as far as the East is from the West, Psalm 103. So there's no real concern about standing before God. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 5, there are so many passages that remind us of how important it is, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we understand that proper kind of fear, not the fear uh, that we would have of, uh, as the old uh, writers have made the distinction between the uh, subservient fear of a servant before a master, that there would be some kind of punitive damage, but the uh, filia fear, the, the, the family fear, the fear that you might have as a child displeasing your father and repercussions for that. Uh, this is not uh, purgatory. This is not uh, the lake of fire, but this certainly is the ability, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, to suffer loss. So the freedom we need to be very careful about is the freedom that is often taught by the false teachers. When in fact, those who teach these kinds of things to entice people to follow them, usually for greed and gain and getting their money, it says they themselves are slaves of corruption. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, verse 15 here. What then, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Okay, again, that's the question, uh, an antinomian rhetorical question. And the answer is by no means, the strongest negation you could have in the Greek language, no. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone uh, as obedient slaves, you are slaves, right? You are enslaved to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And that's the distinction here. These people are slaves of their corruption. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin. You were enslaved to doing the thing that you wanted to do. It was an enslaving cyclical problem. Uh, having become obedient, this is what we did when we became Christians, from the heart to the standard of teaching, which is a doctrinal standard, which includes a moral dictate uh, to which you were committed. It starts the Christian life that way. Having been set free from sin, but having become slaves of righteousness. People talk about being free in Christ. Well, we're free. We're free from the penalty of sin, but we're not free from the constraint in the sense that we have a moral dictate from God that we are now, it says, enslaved to. We are slaves of righteousness, of doing the right things. We're free, as I often say, to do the right thing. And we're free to do that because we willingly, as it says here, obediently from the heart, commit our to the standard of teaching that the Bible directs us to have. Now, slaves of corruption. I need to talk about this word for just a second because it's been in the Greek language here all throughout this text. Here's our word, uh, phthora, 
in the Greek text. It said earlier, you remember this passage, verse 12, but these, the false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, there's our word, same word as corruption here, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, ignorant they will be destroyed, there it is again, Phthora, uh, in their destruction. So we got it three times in this text. And here it is here, corruption. Well, here it's translated destroyed and destroyed and destruction. Well, that is the way you can translate it, certainly. But you can see we've already got the play on words here. Take a look at this, right? They will be destroyed in their destruction. And we didn't spend much time on this because we were running out of time that day. We were dealing with the concept of animals, a little quick theology of animals. But will be destroyed in their destruction. Well, what does that mean, right? Be destroyed in their destruction. Well, the distinction is the two ways in which this word uh, phthora is used. Um, this idea of destroyed in their destruction. Well, we are talking about destroyed. They are going to be punished, destroyed. They will be reaching the condemnation that their deeds deserve in the midst of as they fill, full, fulfill their corruptive behaviors. So we see there's a present reality of corruption and then there's a future destruction. And that's the twofold nature of this word. And in our passage, you can see it both ways, right? They will, they are slaves of corruption, which you could think in terms of their coming judgment. They're enslaved to that future judgment. It's coming. And God's uh, penalty for this false teaching is on the way as we started this passage. And yet there is that corruptive sense, as the Bible says, that affects our lives and our spirits and our spirits are enslaved to sin. Now, just a physical example of this from Romans chapter 8 verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, there's our word again, phthora, uh, our bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glorious children of God. Well, we think about creation itself, right, and all the things that uh, destroy uh, from oxidation to viral attacks to, uh, you know, uh, rust and, and moths eating things up, all of that destruction, the corruption, corroding nature of the world because of sin, because of Genesis 3. Well, the same reality works in our hearts and in our lives, the corrupting nature of what we should be as human beings in our own hearts. Uh, though the outer man is decaying, the inner man should be renewed. Well, there are things like sin that keep that from happening, that are destructive, that are counter to that. Well, the non-Christian false teachers are a prime example of that because their spirit is completely engrossed in their sin. Take a look at this verse, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. The one who sows to his own flesh, right, which is what we've seen to the false teachers. They do whatever they want. They use an excuse to have you indulge in whatever passions you want to indulge in, right? will from that flesh, from all the stuff you're doing, will reap, now here's our word, right, uh, phthora, you will reap corruption. There will be in your life that destructive uh, anti-life, if you will, it's a philosophical way to put it, uh, effect and impact, negative impact on your life, as opposed to the one who sows to the spirit will reap, of course, eternal life. All right, well, this parenthetical statement, as though I had time for it here, uh, not a parenthetical, proverbial statement, I meant to say, it says, for whatever overcomes a person, it says in the bottom of verse 19, uh, well, to that he is enslaved. He's enslaved to that thing that he's given himself over to. When you give yourself over to something, it overcomes you. And that's the problem with sin. As Jesus said, let me close with this. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you're who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, right, then you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from the penalty of sin and even free from the corruptive power of sin. 
And they answered him, well, we're Abraham's offspring, offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, of course they had, that's interesting. Uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, uh, Medo-Persians, the uh, Babylonians. Uh, how is it that you say we'll become free? They didn't like that. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 34, everyone who practices sin, if this is the thing you're doing, throwing yourself headlong into it, like that cartoon I showed you, you know, just raised hand and going after it, that is the picture of the false teachers. Well, then you're a slave to that sin, right? A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, verse 36, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. There's two levels to that, free from the penalty and free from the corruptive hold and habitual pattern of it. And that is the thing that we work toward is, although that's hard as it says in scripture, there will be that constant battle with the flesh. This is a promise that's helpful for us to remember. And I think it's summarized here well. We often overlook this uh, proverbial statement. Uh, I don't know, it's not quoted as often as Jesus' word in John 8, which I guess is understandable. But here's the word of God. For whatever overcomes a person, that thing into which they're enslaved, to that he is enslaved. Whatever it is that they're pointing at to say, indulge in this. You indulge in that. If it's something fleshly and something immoral, the Bible says it will enslave you. All right. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, tomorrow we'll get into verse number 20. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here again, Lord willing, tomorrow, continuing our study of Second Peter chapter 2. 